Well, hi, everyone. We've been away for some time. Well, I say we've been away. We've been away doing things, specials, if you will. But this is the first time that I've sat here and seen all your lovely faces virtually for some time. Well, I say all your lovely faces. Unfortunately, Dave can't join us tonight. But guys, it's, it's great to see you. If I just move the camera around to the way so you can't see my face, then that's even better, isn't it? Look at that. It you is. Can see Damon Hill. Is that in the Jordan? It is indeed, yeah. thought so. Well, I'm Mike. <laughs> I'm Jim. Hello. I'm Graham, hello to you. And collectively, we are the artists known as UK Motor Talk. It's been a while, isn't it? Well, we've been uh, regular listeners to the podcast will be uh, somewhat used, or fairly hopefully somewhat used, to uh, my Formula One roundups after a Grand Prix. But uh, life just kind of got in the way after the, uh, the Spanish Grand Prix, so I never actually got round to, uh, to doing a review. So uh, those that have noticed and have missed my race rundowns then uh, thank you very much those that are listening to this suddenly thinking oh yeah there is that book that rabbits on about f1 i'd forgotten about that mm. then um welcome back but it's a it's a rabbiting on about formula one with uh, with some company this week we thought we'd do it slightly different didn't we? Mm. for a while we've been on tour so uh, we haven't got around to having the t-shirts printed yet but you say this i'm literally sat here in a london to brighton t-shirt because i did the london to brighton mini run so i, I quite literally did that and got the t-shirt um, which which is great fun. Although uh, the air conditioning compressor in my car, so I'm making a, a very weird noise. It sort of grunts and then rattles a bit, and then there's a the sound of running water. It's noises that I, I didn't think an air conditioning system could make, and that's now died. Um, just in time for for summer, which is great. If I had to run from London to Brighton, I think I'd make some gurgling noises and grunting noises, and probably sound like running water as well. But to, to be honest, these, these might all be features of the podcast tonight. Who knows? So, yeah, London to Brighton, Mini survived, there's a surprise. And otherwise, what's new, guys? What have you been up to? Well, no, actually, it was my wedding anniversary the other week, so I went to London. I've done that. Ah, congratulations. That was uh, that was very nice. Thank you. What, on going to London or the wedding anniversary? Or both? The wedding anniversary. <laughs> yes, car-hating oh, oh, London. Both. We had a good weekend, uh, good weekend away and some nice food and wandered around and found a Brewdog pub. I didn't realise I'd opened up their own pubs, but it was a pub that almost exclusively serves Brewdog. So that was a, quite a nice little venue. Wander around, bit of a, saw the Tower of London, did the touristy bit. So it was a, yeah, quite a nice weekend. And got an advance train ticket, and it was very, very cheap being off-peak and a weekend and buying it in advance. So uh, no doubt that'll infuriate Dave, who's currently spending about £4 million a day on the train. Well, how much did we spend the other day? We had to go to, to London, to Westminster, for a meeting about cars. And how much did we spend? £102, I think. For, for the pair of us to go to London Return. What? Yeah, it was... that was it with, with no tube roaming at all. It was just literally London and back, wasn't it? I have bought cars for less, with fuel enough to go to London and back in, and it would only have been the tax. <laughs> I reckon we could, well, we could you, almost you, have you done You wouldn't it. be able to do that nowadays, would you, with, uh, with no. fuel prices approaching... Well, we saw uh, on the way back from wherever we were, Coming back from the other day, we stopped off and uh, just to get something to drink, didn't we? Rather than uh, than needing fuel with our car being electric, but it was one pound ninety nine point nine for diesel, and that's that's not an uncommon price at the moment, is it? No, it's absolutely madness. And, and thinking about London as well, I, I, I said I did the London to Brighton the other day. I didn't really do the London to Brighton at all. I did the Cheam to Brighton because you can't now take your car into central London because of the ultra low emission zones. Although bizarrely. Mine somehow is compliant, but also because they don't want uh, they don't want cars at all at Alexandra Palace anymore. That uh, that seems to be off, despite being a racetrack once upon a time. That's a, that's a no. So it started from Cheam this time, which I thought was 
was weird. I suppose there's less chance of breaking down, isn't there, between there and there? Well, that's true. A few less Did you see Sir Lord Darth Vader whilst you're up there? Sir Lord Darth Vader of Sheen? I, I did not. That's a very niche reference. If uh, if you got that reference, then uh, then excitedly tweet us at UK Motor Talk. Yes, start start your tweet with "Oh, I got this." Right, Formula One. Uh, yeah, well, as I, as I say, I watched it. I was uh, away for the weekend of the Spanish Grand Prix, but uh, watched it when I came back. I think a couple of talking points out of the uh, out of that weekend, rather than doing the normal race rundown, was the uh, the green Red Bull, wasn't it? Aston Martin unveiled their oh, well, it was almost a B spec car, wasn't it? And uh, the entire Red Bull team responded by uh, getting the variant of Red Bull that comes in a green can, and that's all all of them were drinking all weekend just to say, oh look, it's a green Red Bull. Uh, I mean, it, it didn't have to look like a photocopy of the Red Bull, didn't it, with the side pods and. Uh, and the swoopy bits and the undercar. I mean, it was all uh, all investigated by the FIA and all cleared because, of course, the time that Aston Martin would have had to look at the exterior of the Red Bull and try and copy it, you just simply couldn't have done it in time. And uh, and Aston Martin produced evidence that actually no, we started making this before the season started, so there's no way they could have copied Red Bull. But I think that argument will uh, will run and run for a little bit. Aston Martin, I think, went into panto mode. Oh no, it isn't. <laughs> uh, all, all chanted in unison as though uh, one would believe the uh, the fact that they were all singing from the same hymn sheet but um, I suspect that you're unconvinced I'm certainly unconvinced it, it, they might have uh, produced enough paperwork to satisfy the FIA but you know, any race fan will have their doubts I think It's all led by aero and everything though isn't it let's, let's face it there's a set of rules the car's got to be a certain way and you want to make it have the right amount of downforce and slipperiness in the right places. And I, you see that in, in car design generally. You see, I think if you look at something like a Focus and a Seat Leon next to each other, they look like the same bloody car. So yeah, I, I kind of get there. that they might be similar. Nature seems to follow the same thing as well. If you look at fish in general, all fish are pretty much the same shape and have the same bits on them, don't they? There might be different sizes, but there's uh, there's generally an an evolutionary principle applied to things like that, isn't there? And, uh, and if you're a fish, then you tend to be a bit pointy at one end and have some flappy bits and you're quite a sleek shape. You know, you don't see too many fish have, um, you know, that are shaped like a lion, for example. Well, the, the majestic sea flap flap, of course, otherwise known as the <laughs> ray, uh, that, that does look a bit different from everything else. Terrifying kids at Sea Life Centre since goodness knows when. Uh, but yeah. The only variation with fish, I think, is the size of the teeth at one end. Very often, <laughs> I get your point. They, they all do follow that same sort of same sort of shape, and I think you see, say, in, in lots of design, don't you? Planes, for example, are relatively similar, assuming they've got the same type of engine. I think, uh, despite the uh, the photocopy of Red Bull or going down the same route as Red Bull, the uh, the results for Aston Martin weren't the best out of Spain, were they? But it's, I, I think, if you look at where Aston Martin were at the beginning of the season. Bearing in mind they've they've almost gone with this B spec car or or started again. I think they've reset their their journey of understanding and certainly seem to go better in in Monaco than they did in Spain. And you could see that their progression over the first three, four, five races, however many we had before Spain, you could see them improving all the time as they they got their head round the car. But just as most of the teams were learning everything in pre season testing in the first race, Aston Martin have had to start that again. So. Will um, be interesting to see if they make it back into uh, you know the fringes of the top ten or or fighting to be the fourth best team. I mean, it's still incredibly close everywhere from um, the top three downwards, isn't it? So uh, 
a couple of tenths out of the way makes a huge difference. So if they can unlock the potential they clearly think is there in this this B spec car or this green Red Bull, whatever you want to call it, then um, then who knows? They'll they'll be a bit nearer the sharp end. It is interesting how close they all are together. Even Mercedes are beginning to make some improvement at last, and they made a bit again over the weekend. But the increments are are very very small, given how much time and money and effort they're putting in. Having started with a three-legged horse, they up to maybe three and a half legs. They're still a long way from being a competitive front runner. Uh, yeah, well, I think Russell, Russell seemed to be a lot more on top of the car than Lewis in right, so. Spain. Uh, Russell carrying on is uh, is cracking only driver to finish every race in the top. I think the only driver to finish every top race, five. but he's finished every race in the top five, uh, which is uh, which is quite an impressive run. If you look at that pace of the car and where he is in the championship, he's a uh, He's certainly getting everything out of it. Felt bad for Carlos Sainz coming away from Spain. If you'd have said in the build-up to the race that Verstappen was going to take a trip through the gravel and Leclerc was going to blow up at some point in the race, you'd have assumed that Sainz was a shoe-in for, for a win, for his first win in Formula 1 and to win his first race at his home race as well. would have been quite a fairy tale, but he uh, didn't uh, didn't seem to get the most out of it and sort of limped home a slightly anonymous fourth, really, didn't he? I mean, helped at the end by the Mercedes reliability issues having to call it down otherwise it would have been fifth and need to finish behind hamilton wouldn't he mm. we're talking which is just something that did catch my eye this is jumping ahead a little bit to monaco because i habitually doing the races scan everybody's positions on the left side of the screen and i suddenly thought hang on seventh eighth and ninth there's three drivers there there's alonso there's lewis and there's sebastian vettel they've got 13 world championships between them and they're seventh, eighth, and ninth. I think it does show the uh, the changing of the guard, doesn't it? And uh, I think it uh, circumstances does. Circumstances of uh, of car performance and things like that, but a, uh, a definite changing of the guard. But I think moving on from uh, from Spanish Grand Prix to uh, to Monaco, the uh, the sunny French Riviera, uh, we were promised uh, much improved weather, baking hot sunshine, etc. It was certainly a warm one on uh, on Saturday, wasn't it? And Leclerc, mm. king of uh, king of the streets of Monaco again. Streets he grew up on, of course, he uh, he was absolutely on it. Race direction is uh, is probably going to be a talking point for when we get on to the race. But yeah, so a slightly overzealous, unnecessary red flag. I mean, Zenodra had brushed the barrier and, and, okay, he smashed the wheel to pieces, but the red flag came out almost instantly. There were a couple of teeny tiny bits of debris floating around, but it didn't particularly see anything that needed that red flag. So we had the, the normal busyness uh, throughout the end of Q1. Um, Leclerc missing the way bridge. It was uh, it was just good that all the Ferrari mechanics or the team spotted it and pushed him back into the way bridge. Can you imagine being the uh, the race director and having to issue the bit of paper that said Charles Leclerc penalty dis- removed from qualifying, put to the back of the grid? I think you you'd just submit that and then go, wouldn't you? You'd, you'd have to run <laughs> away to Brazil or somewhere like that to get away from it all. But they uh, they pushed him back in time. Everything was going fairly predictably to plan at that stage um and q3 building in the crescendo and and perez ending up in the in the barrier on the exit of uh portier just before he goes into the tunnel lost it and um science uh i think well at one point science was getting investigated for why he hadn't slowed down under yellow flags but the uh the yellow light came on i think it was about a thousandth of a second before he turned into the corner, so there's no way in hell so. you're going to react to that in time. So he collected him as well. He really didn't have a chance. No, not at all. It was a, set the, the tone for the whole race, really. Perez 
qualifying as he did in front of Verstappen. Verstappen, of course, not able to complete that lap, but impressive though Leclerc's actual pole position lap was. He was, what, four, four and a bit tenths up in the first two sectors before the yellow flag came out, so that that would have been something else, that he, he was on another planet on Saturday with Charles. It was, uh, it was quite good to see. Mind you, he was, he was on another planet last year until his last lap, and he chucked it in the barrier on the exit, the swimming pool, so who knows, he might have done the same again. But as it was, Leclerc on pole with his, uh, his rear gunner of science, Perez Verstappen, and, uh, and then the rest behind him. As always, we get in the build-up for, uh, for a lot of races, and we have rain threatened, and we have all spots of rain, and then a little bit of rain, and there's a grid walk, and there's a tiny bit of rain, and then... The rain never actually comes, and it's all fine, and uh, and it's all a storm in a teacup. But bloody hell, didn't it rain? That was uh, there was quite a lot of rain there, wasn't there? There was an awful lot of rain in over a very very short period of time, and and the race director and his team seemed to go into panic mode. And uh, I, I recall one of the, uh, I think it was Christian Horner grumbling about the, it was sort of hokey cokey of of tyre selection because they were bringing tyres onto the grid, putting them on the car, taking them off again because they were being given different information about when the restart would be. Uh, and I think he mentioned four tyre changes on the grid because of the lack of decisiveness. It wouldn't be the first time that the Monaco has been run in uh, torrential rain. And uh, These guys are the, the, the elite of the elite. They're capable of dealing with it. I think they should have been let go but there's others who would disagree with that but um certainly some of them in in post race were very keen to race what a way do we waste an hour uh, well i think as it uh, as it turns out the uh part of the reason for the delay in starting was uh the weather getting into the start line equipment uh, all mm. the starting procedure equipment. So lots of people had questioned why the race was a rolling start having done a formation lap or two um why why have a rolling start have a standing start surely um but because they weren't sure if the uh the five lights out and away we go were going to function correctly they couldn't take the risk so that's why they went with a rolling start instead so they didn't have to rely on that equipment but i think if they'd have uh, if they'd have got going slightly earlier and just got on with it you know if it, it can be torrential rain but if you've got 20 cars floating around on full wets going around at full speed, that clears a hell of a lot of water. So that removes a lot of the standing water. So although it can be very heavy rain, the tyres are clearing the rain at, at a hell of a rate or not. So it's a, it's a, you know, a vicious circle. If, uh, if you're not running, then there's no tyres to clear the water. So the water gets worse, so you can't run. Whereas if you just get on with it, um, yes, I'm sure one or two people will, will go out. But as, uh, as Brundle always says, the throttle works in both directions both on and off so drive according to the conditions and and get on with it really but when we did uh, when we did get going it was uh, it was that waiting game of right when's going to be the best time to swap and do you do you float around on full wets and then go straight to slicks or do you do inters uh, and then slicks ferrari i think just just dropped the ball completely and utterly at this stage yeah, very much so they stopped too late to go on to uh, on to inters, but not early enough to go on to slicks. And, and actually, I think Science had said on the radio, "No, we stay out." And when I change, I go straight on to slicks, and and that's it. The team then overruled him, 
then he said, are you sure you want to overrule me? And then the team said, copy, we are checking. And then came back and said, actually, no, we won't. So stay out. And then he then came in a lap later and Leclerc in as well. So a double stack from Ferrari didn't quite get it done as, as quick or as slickly as Red Bull or Mercedes often do with double stacks. And Sainz is half a lap or three quarters of a lap stuck behind uh, Nicholas Latifi. Sort of scuppered him for the win, really, didn't it? Yes, sadly. There were one or two people at the, that end of the field who didn't perform with a great deal of distinction uh, over the weekend at Monaco. They simply got in the way and uh, they proved their own lack of experience, lack of capabilities, whatever. But the, the, the class acts were unable to get through the field. It's, it's in the nature of uh, Monaco that um, it is very difficult to overtake and will always be the case. The one advantage, I suppose, of Monaco is, uh, is there's very little standing water if you're going to run a, a motor race on a circuit which is uphill and down dale with the harbour at the bottom, there's a pretty good chance you won't have too much standing water. That's true. There was, um, as you say, no uh, no standing no standing water, so no big puddles and not too much aqua plating. A um, couple of really big moments from uh, a few people coming out of the tunnel into the uh, into the new bill chicane. There was an and Guan Yuzhou summed it up quite well. He sort of got on the radio and said. I'll have, to, I'll have to back off a bit and maybe not try overtaking, but can I have a new pair of pants as soon as I get out of the car, please? Because that was a, that was a hell of a save. If you'd have managed to overtake at the same time as well, that would have probably been driving moment of the season, I think. But he did very well to hang on to that. And uh, despite the weather and the conditions, you saw uh, a lot of yellow flags and, and people going straight on uh, at Sandevoe, but getting spinning around and getting back on the track fairly quickly. So I think they were all quite sensible in terms of well, I'm not going to push on most of the corners and I'll push into the one or two corners where there is a bit of runoff. I think Albon and uh, and George Russell actually both got the black and white flag for uh, going straight on at the Neufeld chicane too many times. Yeah. But again, yeah. it's, it's the quickest bit of the circuit. And, uh, and if you get it wrong and outbreak yourself, well, you can just go straight on, give back an approximate amount of time. So actually, you're not going to lose anything or you won't lose much. You might as well push it a bit. Coming out of the tunnels are very... Popular spot to lose it. I lost uh, Williams's simulator many years ago. Uh, I went very, very slowly around, around one lap uh, and without touching a barrier. I came out of the tunnel far too fast, hit the brakes, and rotated into the barriers. It was um, it was embarrassing. It's also <laughs> quite painful because uh, it was a very, very uh, high quality sim, and um, you got a real bashing as you hit the barriers. So we'd had uh, the race progressing and both Red Bulls had managed to leapfrog their, their respective Ferraris that they were battling with. Uh, and then we had one of the defining moments of the race where uh, Mick managed to... Uh, it didn't actually look like that hard of a hit or the first hit into the barrier, but he, he just ripped his car in half completely. I mean, they, they are designed to do that more this year. The engine, including the fuel cell, is supposed to break away from the car as a... Uh, a result of the fallout from Roman Grosjean's accident of, uh, of a couple of mm. years ago. The design is, well, get the heavy bit and get the flammable bit away from the driver, so if anything catches fire, it's the engine and not the survival cell. Um, but, yeah, he, uh, he did that properly, didn't he, and um, had to uh, have a bit of a break, virtual safety car, then safety car, then red flag, whilst the, uh, the Tag Heuer-sponsored Tech Pro barrier was put back together. I mean, that... Uh, I think we'll get on to the future of Monaco at, at the end of the uh, the podcast when we're summing up. But the um, 
Rolex, although they're the official timekeepers of Formula One, Tag Heuer, who sponsor Monaco, certainly got their valleys worth there because their their yeah. logo was on the telly for quite a bit, wasn't it? It, it was indeed. It, it, it must have done them a great deal of good, and particularly the uh, uh, amongst the local populace, because most of them can afford to choose both brands if they so wish, uh, unlike the rest of us, uh, ticker ticker Timex or something. But... Not Jim. <laughs> At this point, just for the benefit of the audio here, uh, Jim is just showing us his collection of various different uh, premium watches. Um, I mean, it, although one, one's in for service at the moment, actually, just as a as a slight aside, I dropped off at the man for, uh, for for some service work. I did inquire about, uh, do I get a courtesy watch whilst my watch is in for service? But he said, no, you don't. So, fair enough. Your courtesy Casio. Mm. <laughs> Good idea. Yeah, why not? Wonderful. As a thought, how much is your watch service costing you? I'm just thinking, compared to a car service. More than a car service. Yeah, I thought it might be. Yes, it is. 300, 400, 500, 600? Just under oh. 600. Wow. But that's for, uh, it needs a, uh, a new uh, mainspring. So that's for all the internals and an oil and a polish up of the case and, and a new mainspring and a couple of other bits and pieces as well, all new gaskets. So it's, um, yeah, it's not cheap, but it's, uh, it's one of those things. It's, uh, it's an appreciating asset. So it's, uh, it's certainly worth a good chunk of change more than when I bought it. So it's one of those, well, if you don't do it, it's, then mm. it knocks the value down significantly. So it's, uh, it is worth, uh, it's a worthwhile investment. So I justify it to myself, really, but. It it only comes around there. I don't get it serviced as often as I should do, to be fair. But it's um, but I don't wear it as often as I should. Do. So every five years, balances it out really. Yeah, five years. But I've I've had it a bit longer mm. than that. So it's a couple. It's a year or so overdue. Um, Let's start saving. It, um, anyway, we, uh, we digress. We are, uh, yeah, we got going again, and then the, the Ferrari seemed to be on uh, on ten lap old hard tyres at this stage. I wasn't quite sure if that was a uh, a timing screen glitch or an information glitch. I mean, at the very start of the race, it said that a good four or five people were on inters, and that turned out not to be the case. So I wasn't quite sure, but it turns out they uh, they were a 10-lap old set of hard tyres that Ferrari had bolted on in the red flag stoppage period, and then Red Bull on the fresh medium tyres, I think, just to give them, uh, or Christian Horner said after the race, it was to give them that, that bit of extra breathing room at the start, just whilst the Ferraris were getting the hard tyres switch back on and if that gave him enough of a gap then off they went not quite the best first corner for Perez after the restart so Carlos was very very close to him but I, I think you know for, for the last however many laps it was Perez looked fairly imperious and didn't need to defend fresh air and and ran the race fairly well just a, a couple of little bits where Science maybe got a run on him through the tunnel, but Perez didn't have to defend too hard from that, so he looked uh, he looked fairly good with it. And then uh, Alonso was just driving around at what seemed to be about four or five seconds off the pace just to uh, to manage the tyre gap. And then you could see after it was only after about six or seven laps, the uh, half the field was behind Alonso at the other end of the circuit compared to uh, to the leaders up front. Uh, Alonso then picked up the pace, but Lewis didn't go with him. So it was definitely a, a finish of two halves, a big gaggle of cars at the front, and then a huge gap, and then Alonso, and then everybody else behind him. The Red Bull certainly did get uh, quite a bit of graining on the tyres, and it was that nervous period, but I think track position at, at Monaco is key. We saw it a few years ago with Ricardo, how he'd managed to, to hold yep. on despite missing... Yep. 
enough power to push your average family saloon car at a decent pace. He managed to hang on. So, so uh, barring a mistake, it was uh, it was never really in question. Um, but a, a great win for Perez. I mean, after Spain, where he was told to to move aside twice and let Max through, and he wasn't too happy. The uh, the general consensus, well, the only way you can win is if he's leading and Verstappen is third. And uh, and as luck would have it, he was leading and Verstappen was third. As the uh, both uh, both drivers had leapfrogged who they were battling with and and got round that way. So Perez from Science, uh, Verstappen coming in third. He he seemed fairly chuffed with the result, though. I mean, in uh, in the championship battle, it it was a net win for him, wasn't it? He extended his championship lead as he finished in front of the guy who's uh, who's currently second in the standing. So. Uh, even on the day where he, he finishes third, if you still extend your championship lead, that's the way to do it. But both Ferrari drivers seemed uh, seemed rather irked after the race, didn't they? Although I will just say Carlos's hair, after spending a couple of hours in a sweaty, rain-soaked helmet, how that man has such phenomenal hair. I mean, I'm not I'm not at all jealous, but bloody hell, his hair looked fantastic after the race. <laughs> it's an odd, odd thing to comment, I know, but his hair is phenomenal. Or perhaps that's why David Coulthard spent so long talking to him and, and <laughs> seemed, seemed to ignore the race leader for a considerable period of time. I couldn't quite understand that. But um, Charles was very, very critical of the team, almost cringingly, embarrassingly so, while he was standing to attention in the pen. He was really not a happy bunny. And I think uh, I saw Binotto uh, interviewed slightly later post-race, and clearly he was very uncomfortable. They made a major rickets of it. Just about everything the Ferrari team could have done wrong, it did wrong. Yeah, was, uh, they did. I mean, but it's it's one of those races where it's, uh, if you're leading, that's probably the worst position to be in, because if you're in second or fourth or third, then you can roll the dice and go ever so slightly different. You know, if you're... If you're running around in 18, then then make that really random call on tyres go completely different to everybody else. You've got nothing to lose at that stage. Shoal, fairly critical. Very easy to uh, to criticise with hindsight. Hindsight's always twenty twenty, isn't it? But at, at least he managed to finish at Monaco. I'm sure it wasn't the result he was uh, he was hoping for. But I think that's his first car race finish at Monaco anyway. So maybe that's a, a slight monkey off his back and... Uh, I would say rolled on next year, but we'll get on to that in a minute. Um, but Russell finishing uh, finishing fifth, so carrying on that run. Norris an excellent sixth. Couple of talking points really from uh, from the weekend. One is Daniel Ricciardo, and one is the the future of the Monaco Grand Prix. So mm. uh, I don't know if we do uh, if we do Daniel Ricciardo first. I mean, it's uh, I, I, it's, it's just getting a bit more and more painful. I mean, Spain wasn't uh, wasn't a good weekend, and you got out of the car and just sort of said. I hope they find some damage on it or something that's broken or something that's gone wrong to uh, to explain the lack of pace because uh, he wasn't really anywhere in Spain and uh, and he wasn't really anywhere in in Monaco either was he I mean uh, sort of not held I think they pushed the setup a bit far in uh, in free practice leading to him bottoming out and, uh, and having a shunt in a very similar place to Mick Schumacher which certainly didn't help the confidence. You know, Monaco is one of those weekends where you just need to build up to it and build up to it and build up to it. And that got interrupted. But uh, a few noises out of Zach Brown saying that the performance isn't there and isn't what we expect. So I, I don't know. Are we are we looking? I mean, there's still time to turn it around. And, and he's, a, he's a lovely bloke and he's a lovely human being and, and an asset to Formula One and and on his day, we've seen him be more than a match for the best drivers in the world. But it's uh, yeah. it's just not happening this year for him, is it? Well, tail end of last year wasn't hugely impressive either. 
the magazines seem to have uh, got into this uh, he's got to go mantra um, because uh, there seems to be that move and he just he just isn't performing. I think it's a damn shame if things go horribly wrong, but I'm beginning to wonder whether he'll actually see the rest of the season out. Uh, well, I think he will. And, uh, you know, honey badgers are famously tenacious animals and they tend not to quit. So, um, so. hopefully he can, uh, even if it ends up being after the summer break or he can he can get some time and have a reset. And, uh, and, and I desperately hope he does rediscover his form because, uh, as I say, he's, uh, he's a great, a great driver to have around in Formula One. I think he's, he's one of my favouritest drivers ever. Is is Danny Rick for uh, for some of his on track and off track antics? I sincerely hope he uh, he can get it turned around and uh, yeah, and get back right. to the driver that he has been. Um, or if uh, yeah, as they if not, maybe it is time. Maybe it's just a McLaren thing and he's not gelling there. Does he try another team? Go to another team? I'm sure we'll have a, we'll have a silly season before not too long, oh, no doubt. Uh, with a few drivers possibly out of contract, but not not quite sure where he'd go or where would be a good fit. Who knows? Maybe back to Red Bull. But... He's one of the great characters in in, in Formula One, and uh, I think we all love him for that. And on his days, he is as good as anybody. But uh, interestingly, he's one of the great characters in a fairly characterless group of F1 drivers. You know, there, there aren't the James Hunts or the you know the big Larry, loud characters, the Mansells of this world that could disagree with anybody, pick a fight with anybody, argue with anybody, but just turn it on on the day. Yeah, I think we would all like Daniel Ricciardo to turn it around, but it's just been painful to watch lately. Fingers crossed for him, but uh, on to the, uh, the future of the Monaco race. There were certainly plenty of murmurings in the run-up to it over uh, the inequity of the current deal compared to other races. I mean, the amount they pay to Liberty Media is far less than some of the other circuits pay. I think after all the, the glitz and glamour and celebrity overload of Miami, most of the team seemed to have calmed down ever so slightly on these celebrity tweets. I mean, I'd, I'd almost got to the stage where I was going to unfollow or block McLaren just because of the sheer amount of James Corden content that they were posting on their channels. And uh, can't stand the bloke, but there was, uh, I think there was a tweet in the run-up to, uh, to Monaco from Alfa Romeo, and they said, you know, oh, guess who's coming to join us? And there was a picture of Valtteri Bottas and, and four or five people stood next to him. And all of the comments were, nope, can't guess. Haven't got a clue. I, I recognise the Finnish bloke in the middle who gets his bum out far too often and likes coffee. But the other four <laughs> or five people, nope, not a clue. Nope, I'm, yeah, I'm going to need more guesses and, and I never get there. And it's, uh, <laughs> but from, from the Miami star studied to uh, the Monaco star studied is, I mean, <laughs> Has it got a future? Is it? Can it survive in its its current format? And the deals, you know, we'd alluded to earlier, the Tag Heuer and, and Rolex mm. and the advertising and all that sort of thing. Uh, can it carry on like this? I mean, it was it was a spectacular and enjoyable race, but that was down to the weather. How often do we get a rainy Monaco Grand Prix? When was the last one? 2008 and before that, it was 96, I think, off the top of my head. We can't be reliant on it raining in uh, on the French Riviera every year to produce a spectacular race. I think it would be a, a great shame to to lose it. I mean, it, it is spectacular. It, the drivers will love it. I mean, if you give the drivers the vote as to whether it'll stay there, um, it certainly will, because it is uh, probably the ultimate Formula One challenge. You know, you have to be millimetre perfect, as we, we saw from some of the, uh, the close uh, action shots of people just brushing the barriers. I mean, they used to say years ago, if there was any paint left on your t- sidewalls of your tyres, 
you weren't trying. You know, it was a pretty good adage. And I've seen some some great races from there over the years and some some absolute masters that sort of dominated. But uh, I, in going through, I, I was doing a little historical digging earlier and I hadn't realised how many of the, I mean, they've, they've been there since 29. They've been part of the Formula One circus since 1950. But they have missed a few years because they haven't been able to do the right deal with the then governing bodies. 53 and 54 they missed, I think. The two post-war years, 47, 48, they couldn't afford to run the race there. I wasn't aware of that, but you know, nevertheless, they have run uh, nearly 80 races there over the uh, over the time period. I also didn't realise that they were the, just about the last circuit to get any Armco. They didn't have Armco until 69, which is really quite extraordinary, which is probably why over the years there have been one or two people that have fallen in the water who uh, uh, also came out of the tunnel a little bit too fast. Um, didn't have a, a runoff area in those days and um, just fell in the harbour. certainly been a few years since anyone's ended up in the harbour, but I, d- I don't know, Is it can, can it stay but maybe in a, in a different format perhaps? I mean, Gates from uh, from Tripstick, let's, let's bring it more local and the, uh, let's, uh, let's change it to the, uh, the Monaco of the South Coast and, uh, and compare it to Goodwood. Uh, mm. Festival of Speed and Revival. Uh, if you uh, if you almost ignore the type of cars that either go up the hill or round the track, Festival of Speed certainly provides some spectacular and enjoyable on track action to watch. But it's uh, it's a time trial and it's one at a time. As as a casual observer, would you be more inclined to watch it if it was maybe a timed shootout? You know, the King of Monaco is whoever can get round the fastest, and and you spend a few days going round faster and faster and faster. Does that sound more exciting to you? No. For, 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 Good. So, great. <laughs> for qualification, I think, yes, that's quite interesting because I like the idea of seeing how fast you can get around. They're just catapulting yourself around. But when it comes to racing, you want to see at least two cars going wheel to wheel, don't you? Really? Going for the yeah. gap. If there's, if there's nothing in the way, so. then I, I think it'd be quite good fun to see how fast they can go around. But like I say, maybe for for quality and not for uh, not for actual racing. They they're kind of limited in uh, in what they can they can actually do. Bearing in mind the geography of the place and, and the buildings that are there already, um, mm. or do they sort of go go all in and try and have a little wiggly bit in the town like they do at the moment and, and build a bit that okay it might actually cross over the border and, and disappear into another country? But that'd be quite good. Have uh, have one race, you know. Name the first Formula One Grand Prix to be held across two countries at the same time. Maybe something like that, or you know, they're reclaiming land out into the harbour. Do they really go nuts with it and, and build out that way and put a more Balloon. traditional bit of track? In? I mean, it, it, it seems like a bit overkill for a, for a Grand Prix, but I, uh, you know, I want it to stay. I, I like Monaco. I like so anything I. that's on a road. To be honest, I, th- I think it, there's it, it's somehow far more interesting to watch cars flying through. Or flying along a, a general piece of road, and it's the same when you when you see rally cars do the same thing, and they go flying along what is a country road that's been shut. I find that really interesting. There's something. It's not like it's it's obtainable or achievable, but perhaps more relatable. I guess there there seems to be more more skill involved, and you you get a, a better sense of speed than you do on a track. Because when you're on a, a big track with lots of runoff, you think of somewhere, think of Silverstone, for example. You don't get that same perspective, do you? No, it can seem a, a bit a bit safer, or uh, the, the car can be completely on the limit. But you lose that sense of jeopardy because if it goes wrong, 
they'll have a wobble and they'll run off the runoff area and you know, not even through a gravel trap or do anything to the car. They just skate across the, the runoff tarmac and rejoin and carry on again. A lot of people were commenting, oh, the cars are much bigger and heavier and so on this year. And and in saying, doing a little bit of research earlier, they were running the auto unions there in 38. They were enormous. Mind you, nobody could overtake them, which is why they were never invited back post-war. But, they were. <laughs> but you were commenting about running into another country one of the reasons for the setting up in 29 or 28, 29 of the circuit itself was the fact that they couldn't call the then Monte Carlo rally a fully international event because most of it took place on other countries' roads. So uh, the then Prince and uh, Anthony Noges, corner named after him on the circuit, came up with the idea of, well, let's use the streets. Let's put together a circuit on the streets. and. That's how it was found. That way, at least, they got an international event. But as, as I've commented, there have been a number of years when uh, they've just not been able to afford to run it. In, in one of the richest enclaves on earth, they couldn't always raise the money to run the race. And let's hope, on this occasion, uh, liberty will prevail, some common sense will prevail, and the fact that it is an absolute classic will sustain it. But then again, uh, look at the number of Grand Prix in recent years where the promoters have had to dip out and couldn't afford to put a race together. Is it okay for it to stay? Is, is maybe one of those events that isn't the best on uh, on TV, but I'd imagine going there is spectacular. I mean, I've, uh, oh, I've been yes. to Monaco once, not for a uh, not for a Grand Prix weekend. I was there, and it was, I think it was about three or four weeks, two, three, four weeks before the Grand Prix was on. So. The setup was going on, and bits were being painted, and grandstands were going up, and whatever else. But it was a, uh, it was odd just to to walk around the entire length of the track and sort of look at how congested it was with a few two meter wide cars floating around. You think, how on earth do they drive around here at nudging two hundred miles an hour? It must be absolutely insane. And I think just on the exit of the swimming pool. The chicane coming coming into the swimming pool is is one of the most spectacular places to watch a racing car on the planet. Um, mm. Just the commitment they carry through there. So it's uh, it's uh, I think it's one of those things you have to go once. And if uh, if that was the last one and it doesn't return and I never get the chance to go and see a Monaco Grand Prix, I think I'd be quite upset with that. I think I'd like to go for the noise. Yes, they're not like the old cars, and no, you don't get so much so much of the, of the sound, but. When you have buildings and things for the, for the noise to bounce off of, yeah, I think I think I can see where you're going for it. Like like a football match, it's the atmosphere, isn't it? Yeah, I've been to uh, I've been to a, a football match or two before, and even though I'm not that big a fan of watching football in general, it it was a spectacular event to go to and and watch, and you can see how people do get into it, but only want to go and watch it live and, and want to watch every game and buy a season ticket and follow the club that they support all the way throughout the year because it's, it's a very different experience to sitting at home and watching it. You're quite right. I think it's a part of the promoter's problem, of course, is other buildings, are the fact that um, an awful lot of people can make an awful lot of money renting out their balconies to spectators that would otherwise be paying to place their bums on seats that the promoter was uh, gaining the revenue from. Um, and I, I don't actually know what the numbers are, but I suspect in terms of actual seated capacity, it's probably by a very long way the smallest Grand Prix of all, uh, and probably I would that, have thought uh, so, yeah, yeah, that that would explain I think the the lack of cash to uh, 
to entertain mm. Liberty Media's coffers. Yeah, but when you uh, when you look at the number of uh, flats and apartments that do overlook the track, um, yeah, there'd be thousands of people. Uh, certainly, tens tens of thousands of people can watch it from their own balcony without having to uh, to pay for a ticket. It's just the uh, the couple of million euros they've had to pay for the flat in the first place. So it's uh, it's a long term investment if you're a Formula One fan. So. Yeah. I have to say, though, I mean, if I'm given the option of watching uh, motor racing in a place that has real water and a place that has plastic water and half boats, then I'll, I'll go for Monaco every time. So anyway, I guess on that note, it must be time to end. It's been great chatting to you again, and I hope you've enjoyed listening about F1. We will see you next time. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye. Take care. Good night, everybody. UK Motor Talk, a first take media production.